You know, that song was written by Pink. And um, as she wrote it, it's just got a kind of a haunting tone to it as she asks a question, how do I feel this good when I'm sober? Because when I'm not sober, life is so good and I'm so high and there's no pain. How do I get this without a substance in my system? How do I take the edge off? How do I feel good without help? from a substance. And so while we focus today on alcohol, today's message can be expanded to substance abuse. Uh, we, we don't only have an alcohol crisis in our country and in our culture. We have an opioid crisis. I know many of you have heard about that and know about it. Um, but it's just it's substance abuse. The, the difference with alcohol, we're going to focus on alcohol, but what we're talking about really expands to all substances. Um, the difference with alcohol is we don't see it as much because it's just so normalized in our culture. It is just a normal part of the fabric of our lives. It's glamorized um, in our culture. Um, it, is, it is not an issue that we talk about. It's kind of invisible. Um, and we're, so we're heading, in, we're heading into a, a touchy subject, and it's a difficult one today because, I, you know, it's like I, I don't, um, don't want to meddle in your life but I know that God always wants to meddle in our lives, right? And so it, like as, as I teach and as we talk, I want it to be a discussion, but I just want you to hear my heart on it. I don't want to tell you what to do with your life. It's, it's your life. You make your, your decisions. Um, but, but, but what I do want to do is, is just share from a passionate perspective. I'm passionate on this topic because of what I've seen and what I've experienced in my life through ministry and my own personal story, which I want to share a little bit with you. Um, but my hope and my prayer is that you would just hear from God today. Um, I just have asked him to move and speak specifically to each one of us individually, whatever we need to hear today. And I'm trusting him to do that through his scripture and through the way the conversation goes. So let me pray for us before we jump in. Um, Lord, I thank you for this morning. I thank you for um, the way that your scripture speaks into the heart of where we live as human beings and you reveal your heart. And so God, I, I, don't, know where, um, I don't know where anyone is at in this room uh, on this topic, um, but God, I just pray that you would open our hearts and our minds to hearing your voice. Lord, any defenses that we might have up, um, even with just this being brought up, I pray that you would just take those defensive defenses down so that we might hear your voice on, uh, on this. God, so I pray that you would speak loud and clear. I pray that your Holy Spirit would move among this room um, and in me as we, as we go to your word to find out what you have to say about this. Um, and God, I pray that this would be a morning that, that sparks life change in all of us. In your holy name, amen. So as we started this series last week, it's called Crave, and um, this is what we said about our cravings, and last week we talked about the craving, uh, I just can't say no to others, other people's approval. And uh, if you missed it, go back and listen to it. But here's what we said, um, kind of a blanket statement. It's from Andy Stanley. He's a pastor in Atlanta. But he said this. He said, our cravings will either rule us or we um, will, will rule them. Our cravings will either rule us or we will rule them. And he's speaking about these urges and desires we have in us that are so powerful that they can overpower your prayer life. They can overpower your prayers. Um, our cravings shipwreck and, and sideline more individuals in this world than anything else. They can overpower your commitment to Jesus. I know people that have walked away from a relationship with Jesus because they've chosen a substance over that uh, relationship. They can overpower your worship. They can derail 
direct the course of your life. And so um, the big idea of this series is, is how we handle our cravings will determine the direction and quality of our life. How you handle your cravings will determine the direction and quality of your life. Why? Because cravings have consequences. Some of you grew up in a home without a parent in your home because they gave in to a craving. They left you for something they loved more. And I'll just tell you, that's my story. If I just want to get personal, that's my story. For my dad, it was alcohol. My dad loved alcohol more than he loved me, more than he loved my brother, more than he loved my mom, more than he loved his family. He drank all the time, and I'll just tell you, he was what they call a high-functioning alcoholic. He was brilliant. He had 60 patents to his name in the tool and dye industry back in the 70s and 80s, one of the leading pioneers of that industry. We grew up, we flew all over the country installing his shuttles and his robots in car plants all over, all over the country. But yet, growing up as a young kid, I never remember a night without a drink in his hand. Don't remember a single night without a drink in his hand and multiple, uh, I lost count of the amount of times in, in a week that he would end up passed out on the couch because he couldn't say no to alcohol. And here's the thing, alcohol in itself is not the evil. It's not, it's not the evil his craving for it was. His craving for alcohol was the evil and that craving left me fatherless at an incredibly young age. He drank every day of his life until he was 80 years old. And at 80 years old, he got a little tipsy and fell in the kitchen of his home and hit the back of his head when he fell on a piece of raised trim in the kitchen and went into the hospital, got pneumonia while he was there. He went in with a closed head injury, got pneumonia while he was there and never came out. Never came out. My dad, at 80 years old, could not go a single day without drinking. Couldn't do it. And I'll just say this, alcohol took his life. But here's what's interesting. It didn't take his life after 80 years. It took his life decades earlier. It took his life before I was born. It had already taken his life. And he just never knew it or couldn't do anything about it. And he missed out. He missed out on knowing um, two and Two boys that were so good-looking and muscular, built like Roman gods. Um, he missed out on knowing us. He's missed out on, on nine grandkids that he never knew. Never even knew my brother. And, and while it, alcohol took his life before I was born, it took mine too. It took my dad from me when I needed a loving father the most. So let's just personalize this truth for today. How we handle alcohol and how you handle substance abuse or substances in your life will determine the direction and quality of your life. How you handle alcohol will determine the direction and quality of your life because it is one of the most dominant themes in our culture today. It is everywhere. Um, drinking is a part of every function. It's to the point where if you don't drink, you're the odd person out. You're the weirdo if you're not drinking. Why do we drink? We drink to numb our pain. We drink to forget our past. We drink to celebrate our victories. We drink to fit in. We drink to be cool. We drink to take the edge off. We drink to feel sophisticated. There is a myriad of reasons why we consume alcohol. 
So the question is, how do you know if you've got a problem then? If it's so socially acceptable, if everybody does it, if it is normal and it's seen everywhere and cool people do it, how do you know if you have a problem? And so here's where we want to go. We have a resident expert that has been speaking um, to us, going to be speaking to us every week this series. And um, his name is Jack Wilson. He's a personal, um, kind of a bonus dad to me for the last 20 years. Um, but he is also, a, he's a clinical psychologist. He's an executive coach. Um, he's our resident expert for the series, but he's also an expert on alcohol and alcohol-related issues. And so he is interviewed by a, one of my other friends named Dave Wilson about this time topic and really kind of answers the question, how do you know if you got a problem with this? Because there's a high percentage of us that do, we just might not know it because it's so invisible. Now, before I show that to you, we're going to receive our offering um, because of how we want to end the service. So ushers, I'm going to ask you to go ahead and come forward. And for those of you that are new or you're visiting, let the basket go by. Um, we are just grateful that you're here. We're, we want this service to be a gift to you. Um, uh, no charge. We're going to give it to you. Like, we're just generous like that. Um, but, uh, but for those of you that call Kensington home, this is where we give back to God from what he's blessed us with. And we say thank you at the same time. And I want to thank you for those of you that, that keep us going forward in our ministry to reach more people. Now, um, while we're doing that, I want you to just take a few moments and let's listen in to Jack Wilson talk about where we're going today. Let's take what you just said and apply it to like alcohol. Sure. When is that a problem? Let's talk about predisposition first. Right. Yeah. I think it's really, really important that people understand uh, that this isn't settled science. Okay, it's, but the trend line has been around for a very, very long time, uh, and, and it influences my thinking to the level that I truly believe that a certain percentage of the population are physiologically predisposed uh, to developing addictions, whether it's uh, alcohol or marijuana or a controlled substance. Uh, we're physiologically predisposed, and the best way to figure out whether you're physiologically predisposed is to look at your family history. You know, take a look at that family tree, you know, and see if there are people in your past uh, who um, have had problems with drinking or, or whatever, because that used to be the term that was used. Uh, and if there is, then for you, drinking is something that you really should not be cavalier about. It's something you should really be paying some attention to, because if you have a physiological predisposition, then you're going to move through uh, recreational, moderate drinking, uh, to irresponsible drinking and addiction much more quickly than someone who doesn't have a physiological predisposition. Now, obviously, somebody like me, you know, I look mm -hmm. at my family tree, mm -hmm. right. and I have two alcoholic parents. Mm -hmm. For decades, I never even thought about it. Mm -hmm. It's like, oh, I can drink a beer, right. I can drink whatever, it's right. no big deal. You would have immediately said to me, Dude, be very, very careful with this. Exactly. Everybody should be careful, but especially somebody with a background yeah, like mine. Absolutely. So what do I do? Uh, well, in your situation, uh, I, would have, I would have said to you that you need to be aware of the fact that becoming intoxicated is just not safe for you. Mm. If you were to drink even moderately, uh, then I would say there's a better than a 60% chance that you would have triggered uh, your physiological predisposition, and we'd be talking about some kind of a recovery issue. And I've heard you say in the past the analogy of uh, playing Russian roulette with predisposition. Talk about that. Yeah, when we have a predisposition, um, the higher that predisposition is, when we look at our family history, you know, both your parents have 
uh, substance abuse issue, then the likelihood that four out of, if there are five kids in the family, like my family, uh, the probability is that four out of those five kids are physiologically predisposed. Uh, and then if the grandparents have, a, you know, have an issue, the aunts and the uncles. So the more people you have in your family tree uh, or the more, uh, more culturally relevant it is for you uh, and you're playing Russian roulette and you're spinning the cylinder, okay, if you don't have a physiological predisposition, yeah, you can probably develop alcoholism. It's not likely, but it's probably good. But let's say you have one bullet in the cylinder. But if all of those factors that I just described to you are there, then you've got five bullets um, in there, and there's only six spots. Yeah. You know? So the higher the issue is there in terms of, of number of people, then oh, we get, better be careful with this Russian roulette thing. What would you say to the person sitting out here that says, I don't really have a problem with drinking? Maybe they do, maybe they don't, but they really honestly don't think they have a problem. How does a person know? Well, the, one of the biggest issues in terms of the way you know is the feedback that you're getting from the people around you. Mm -hmm. You know, if you have people saying to you, uh, I think you should um, cut back on your drinking, well, pay attention to them, see what they're saying. Uh, if you're in a circumstance or situation where family members, colleagues, whatever, have said to you something about your drinking and you get angry about it, well, pay attention to what to what they're what they're saying. You know, uh, if there's a circumstance or situation in which you feel guilty about your drinking, well, pay attention to that. Uh, and uh, and if you're in a circumstance or a situation where at any point in time you've ever uh, had a hangover, and you wake up the next morning and you and you convince yourself that you need an eye opener to get the day going. Mm. What I just did was what's called the CAGE, C-A-G-E, uh, and it's taught to physicians and, and therapists uh, to get an introductory idea in terms of if you say yes to two of those four questions, then we need to have a chat about whether you're drinking irresponsibly or perhaps you're in a circumstance or situation where you've already what we call tipped over mm. into addiction. Now walk through the cage again. I'd love to hear the C-A-J-G-E okay. explained. Okay. Have you ever tried to cut back? Okay. So that's the C. So that's the C. Have you ever been angry you know, uh, when someone questioned your drinking? <laughs> have you ever felt guilty, that's the G, about your drinking? And have you ever had an eye, what's called an eye opener, you know, mm -hmm. a, a drink early in the day uh, to, to help you to have fewer um, anxiety issues or, or fewer symptoms of, of hangover. So that's the cage. Talk about, I remember a decade ago or so when we talked about alcohol, you talked about the 30-day sort of test. Mm -hmm. Talk about that. Yeah, this is something that's kind of idiosyncratic to me uh, in that when someone says to me, well, how do I know if I have a drinking problem? My response is don't drink for 30 days and come back and talk to me. Mm -hmm. well, let's talk about how it goes. And I found over the years that... Um, I've done that, you know, I don't know how many people. And um, it really is a very good predictor or indicator of what role alcohol uh, is, is playing in their life if they just try to go, okay, 30 days, not going to drink. And for most folks that I've talked to, ah, it's easy, it'll be a piece of cake, don't worry about it, you know, kind of thing. And occasionally it is. But if they asked me that question, see, it fits right in the cage thing. Mm -hmm. They asked me that question, that's telling me, well, this is worth taking another look at this. You know? So try it for 30 days, and then let's talk. Now, I want to hit on a couple things that Jack brought up. Um, 
that are just really important to this. And, you know, the beautiful part about what we get to do on Sundays is we get to talk about the human condition that we all wrestle with. And then we get to talk about the spiritual condition. What does God say about our human condition? And so the human condition, when you get into it, there is this thing called predisposition. It's a big deal. And basically what it says, to put it really simply, is for some people they have a predisposition towards certain behaviors which expand outside of, of alcohol. There's, there's a number of behaviors that we can tend to have a predisposition towards. And what that means is there is a, uh, a group of people in, in, in the world genetically, the way that they're wired, for them, when you look at their history, for them to have a problem with alcohol, it is as simple um, as kind of jumping from this side of the stage to this side. It is one time out drinking. It is one time getting drunk. It is one party they go to, and it is very easy for them to move into a place where they have a really, uh, they have a problem and they're headed towards a life of problems because they have a predisposition towards it. It's just really easy for them to get there. People that don't have that predisposition, how I describe it is just people that don't have a predisposition, let's say, towards alcohol, it is like jumping the Grand Canyon for them to become an alcoholic. Now, can they get there? Yes, but it's going to be a lot of work. It's going to be a lot of time. It's going to be a lot of binge drinking over and over and over to the point where suddenly they have a problem. And that's just the way that we are wired. Now, does that mean that it's, it, they don't have a choice? No, it's always a choice to go from here to here. There's always a choice involved, but for some people the choice is super simple and it's one choice and they're done. And other people it's multiple choices over years. And, and this is where we get into just me being transparent. Um, uh, I, I don't drink alcohol. I never have in my entire life. I do not know if I have a predisposition towards alcoholism. The statistics say I do just because of looking at my family history with my dad and whatnot. But this is what I did in my teenage years. I decided after having my family split apart in large part because of my dad's love for the bottle, um, I decided I didn't want anything to do with alcohol. If that's the outcome of alcohol, I don't want to touch it. And so I, I decided I would never drink because I never wanted to be like my dad. I never wanted to do that to my kids someday. I didn't want to do that to my wife someday. I didn't want to know if I had a predisposition towards it. And see, here's what's funny. Like people find out I'm a pastor and I do what I do and they're like, wow, it's so great. You don't drink because you're such a good Christian and you're such a good pastor. And I'm just, you know, and you must think that people that do drink are bad people. And I'm just like, no, that is not why I don't drink. Now, it did turn out good that this ended up being my career, right? So it kind of works hand in hand, especially working with teenagers. But I just tell them, look, I chose to not drink before I ever knew this is what I was going to do and before I really uh, had God get a hold of my life. I chose that because I don't want to find out if I've got a problem with alcohol. I don't want to know in my entire life. I don't care to know. I've seen the destruction. I've experienced it. So that's, but that's my choice for my life. And that's what I just say, look, that's my choice. I'm not going to make anybody else's choice because you've got to make your own. But for me, that's why I've never drank. It's because of my family history and what, what, what the statistics say of my probability of really struggling with it. Outside of me, there are so many opinions on this. It's like some say never touch it. Uh, the alcohol's bad. It's evil. Don't touch it. Other people say it's fine. Go ahead and drink it. Well, I want to go to Scripture. What does God say about this topic? Um, and, and here's what, what I love about the Scriptures. Um, what you find is alcohol by nature is not bad. Scriptures don't say it's bad. First Timothy 5.23, uh, uh, Timothy Rice says, stop drinking only water and use a little wine because of your stomach and your frequent illnesses. Like, think about it. He knew that there were medical benefits to drinking wine. Go figure. What do we know now? Most, most scientists say there's a medical benefit to drinking wine. 
Ecclesiastes 9.7, go eat your food with gladness and drink your wine with a joyful heart for God has already approved what you do. Jesus' first miracle, what was it? He turned water into what? Wine. You're like, amen, brother, I love Jesus, right? Alcohol by its nature is not bad. It is not a bad thing. But we've got to be careful how we deal with it. We have to be careful with how we deal with it. Proverbs 20, verse 1, wine is a mocker and beer is a brawler. Whoever's led astray by them is not wise. Whoever's led astray by drink is not wise. They are foolish. In fact, I was uh, a national news channel that I watch, and one of the hosts, they were having a conversation, I think it was around the opioid crisis and other forms of substance abuse, and, and he just said, he's like, everything bad that I've ever done in my life can be traced back to alcohol. I'm like, what? And this guy, he's a, he's a pro- proclaimed agnostic atheist. He's like, everything bad in my life, every bad decision I've ever made. I think he was overstating it a little bit, but what is he agreeing with? Proverbs 20, verse 1. 1 Peter 4, 3, for you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do. Pagans are people who are not following God with their life. Living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. Be careful when it comes to alcohol. Proverbs 23, 31, do not gaze at wine when it is red, when it sparkles in the cup, when it goes down smoothly. Only drink white wine. I'm just kidding. That's not in there. In the end, in the end, it bites. It bites like a snake and poisons like a viper. And these are just a few of the verses of many that warn us and tell us to watch out and be careful. Did you see in there any verse that says, don't ever touch it, don't do it, leave it alone, it's horrible. No, it just says, be really careful when you go to this part of your life. And so I would just put it this way, before you take a drink... There's a lot at stake. Your faith, your family, your future is at stake. So before you take a drink, you're going to remember this, before you take a drink, just stop and think. Stop and think. This is an area that's glorified in our culture. This is an area where cool people drink. They can handle their alcohol. This is an area where young people look up to their parents. They look up to popular cultural icons, and they look up to adults on how to handle alcohol. And so let me just talk a little bit, on the, let me key in on the age of 21, and this is from Jack Wilson, who just talked with us. Um, uh, 21 and 22 is a huge developmental age for us as human beings. The brain isn't developed fully um, to, to, to making wise decisions until the age of 21, 22. I think it's like 27, 28 for guys, 21, 22 for girls. Um, but until that age, the impulse part of the brain, the prefrontal cortex is not done developing. And that overpowers the reasoning sides of our brains. Well, many people start drinking starting from the age of 12. By the age of 15, a third of our population have already had a drink, already had their first drink by the age of 15 years old. Here's the danger of that. If you start drinking or smoking is is about as, as addictive, if you start that stuff or substance abuse before the age of 21, because of the developmental process in your brain, you have a much higher chance of addiction starting then than if you start after you're, you're 21, 22 years old. Now, I need to put on my youth pastor hat for a second. I spent 15 years working with teenagers. And let me just say, say this to you. I want to talk to you parents. Where do a majority of kids get alcohol from? From home. 
85% of underage kids who drink get alcohol from their house or the house of a friend. 85%. That's where they get it. As parents, you are role modeling every day of your life. Kids will copy what you do. They will not copy what you say. They are watching everything you do, every move you make, especially in this area. And let me just give you a story because it just sticked out in my mind. As soon as I knew we were talking about this, I want to tell this story. Had a kid in my youth group, 17 years old, from a very wealthy family. Kind of pillars in our community as a church, large church up in the Detroit area. Kid's mom called me one evening, distraught, weeping, could hardly understand what she was saying, and she just let me know that her son had a DUI at 17 years old and, and was in jail and wanted to know if I would go talk to him. And so I did. I went and talked to him, and, and uh, they started battling it out in court, and I just started meeting with him regularly. And I, I kept asking him because kind of part of dealing with this is going back to where it begins, right? And so I kept kind of asking him, where does this come from? Where are you getting this from? Why did you start doing this? And he was so evasive, and he wouldn't talk to me. He wouldn't talk to me. And finally, we got to the point where I'd, I, had, I had pressed him enough to where he finally just told me the truth. And he just threw tears. He just told me. He just said, every night my parents drink. Every night. And sometimes they drink to where they're buzzed. I can see it in their eyes. And sometimes they drink... More than that, they have hundreds of wine bottles in our basement, in the humidor we have in our basement. And he's like, I'm around it all the time. I've seen it since I can remember. And he's through tears just going, I just wish they would stop. I wish they would remove it from our house. I wish, I wish they'd never had it in the first place. And he's just, just going on about this, this gen Genesis story of the problems that he's experiencing. Well, well, well here's what just breaks my heart is I went and I met with the parents. And I'm just, I sat down because they, know what, they were asking me, what do we do? And I literally shared with them verbatim what their son said. And they just said, what should we do? And I just said, I, I think you need to stop drinking and remove all alcohol from your house for the sake of your son. And they looked at me for a long time and then said, we'll let you know. Two weeks later, I check in with them and they had made the decision, we're not going to give up drinking, we're not going to remove the wine from our house. And in the back of my mind, I'm just going, how do you not listen to your son who's crying out for help? telling you exactly what he needs, and you're not willing to give up what this for your son? It was dumbfounded by it. Well, guess what happened four months later? Guess who's got their second DUI? See, the first one, they had enough money and got a good enough lawyer. All charges were dropped, nothing on his record. Second one, there were all kinds of consequences that he wasn't getting out of. And his parents still wouldn't stop. Talked to him again, said, this is what your son needs. We're not going to do that. To the point where they eventually ended up making a deal with him, and they just said, look, you can drink and you can get drunk, but you have to do it in our basement. And that's how he grew up. And I tell you that, that that's just one story. It's not everybody's story. But this is an issue where you would look at this family and you would never see that there was an issue. Ever. Until you start finding out that, oh my gosh, there is a craving there. There is a stronghold there that is so destructive. It literally destroyed their son's life. And, and is it their fault? No. They, 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 their son made his own choices. But they sure set him up for success or failure in those choices. 
Before you drink, you've got to stop and think, who's this impacting? Uh, How is this helping me in my life? And let me just give you a little bit of wisdom from Paul. Um, He's one of my heroes in the the faith. He wrote most of the New Testament. And and when it comes to my thinking on alcohol, if you were to counsel with me and we were to kind of sit eye to eye and knee to knee, this is what I share. This is a verse I eventually end, end up at. And it's 1 Corinthians 10 where Paul just says, I have the right to do anything you say, but not everything is beneficial. I have the right to do anything, but not everything is constructive. No one should seek their own good, but the good of others. And this is where I just want to share my perspective on this um, from this passage of Scripture. And I don't share this a whole lot. Just so you guys know, if you were to come and ask me for uh, answers or we were talking about it, I would talk to you about it. But I don't... I don't share this publicly a whole lot because it's too easy to feel condemned or think I'm saying something that I'm not. And let me just tell you about that um, on topics like this. If you're feeling convicted, that's a really positive thing because that's how the Holy Spirit works. Conviction says, I really need to change in this area. If you're feeling condemned, that is not from God. And condemned says, you're a bad person and you're wrong, and you're evil. It's accusing and condemning to you. And let me just tell you, that's not my hope right now. I don't want to condemn you, but if the Holy Spirit's convicting you, that's what I pray for, because I want him to convict me so that I'll change as well. But let me just tell you how this passage of Scripture has woven its way into my life and observation on this topic over the years throughout my life in full-time ministries. In full-time ministry, I've rarely, if ever, heard someone over the last 25 years In counseling sessions, group conversations, I've never once in my life have I heard a person say that alcohol has made them a better decision maker. Not once in my life. Never heard that. Where someone said, you know, drinking really made me smarter. Made me make better decisions. I've never heard from a single person that said alcohol has enhanced my marriage. It's made it better. It's taken it to a new level that we've never been at because we, we drink. I've never heard from a person that said um, alcohol has made my life better. I've never um, heard from a person in 25 years that alcohol has brought me closer to my kids um, or made my relationships better. I've heard funny stories about alcohol, but not positive life change stories. In 25 years, I've not heard one of those. But what I have heard is thousands of stories Thousands of stories where alcohol has destroyed lives, estranged families, distanced relatives, brought ruin into people's lives. I've lost count of the amount of stories I've heard exactly like that. And that's what Paul is getting at here. You can do anything you want. You're free. You're free to drink as much as you want. But is it beneficial to you? Is it constructive? You've got to ask that question and deal with that. And so this is what I say to people who are struggling in this area and they've sought me out. What do you think? How can I view this? And I just say this. I just ask them a question. And this is my question. I'm not telling you what to do, but my question to them is why do something that only has downside potential? Why do something that the only way it can go is south? That's it. Only way. Why do that? And not in a way to power, power up on people and tell them you got to be. It's just like, no, just think about it. Not everything's beneficial do whatever you want. Not everything's constructive. And, and why do something that, that literally, and you know hundreds of stories, maybe thousands of stories. It's only downside potential, so why do that? And that's just kind of where I land. Again, it's, 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 not, um, it's not to tell you what to do, but I, I just love how Jack says it because some of us are going, hey, um, um, wh- how do I know if I have a problem? I love the way he says it. He's like, quit drinking for 30 days. See how it goes. 
Quit drinking for 30 days. If it drastically impacts your life in a negative way, you might have a problem. Or if you just can't do it, you might have a problem. So this is where I want to get to. I want to get to some action steps. Um, <clears throat> what do we do if we think we have, have a problem? We might have a problem. What do we do if we ask the four questions that Jack asked in the cage and we find out that we've said yes to two or three or four? And that's kind of where we're at if we're totally honest. And I want to give you some steps to what do you do if you, if you might have a problem. And the first thing that you do if you want victory over the bottle, there's two steps to it. And I'm going to give you the second step first. The second step we need to take if you want victory over the bottle is you need to admit that you need help. Just admit that you need help. Until you tell someone your problem, you will always have that problem. Until you tell somebody your problem, you'll always have it. There's two ways to live. You either conceal or you reveal with your life. And I'll just tell you, some of us, we live a very concealing life. As long as your craving has a secret, it doesn't matter what. As long as your craving is a secret, that secret has power over you. So when you conceal, it really equals death. When you conceal, you're living alone. When you conceal and you're not letting people know that secret has power over you, it leads to death. This was my dad's way of life. It got to the point where my stepmom could not stop him from drinking, but she removed all alcohol from the home. And then what she learned over the course of years and decades is that she would periodically go and check every single bottle in the house that could hold liquid because my dad would go and pour out the liquid and fill it with alcohol to hide it around the house. He always concealed, always concealed, never talked about it. When he was caught, he would just find another way to conceal that. That was how he lived his life. Yet once we bring the things that are done in darkness, the cravings that we have that nobody knows about, out into the light, it begins to lose its power. And some of you are going, what do I do? Because it might not be alcohol, it might be something else. What do I do with it? You begin to reveal it. Because here's the deal, you can reveal to bring it into the light, or God will eventually bring it into the light anyways. And here's the verse in that Luke 12, Jesus is talking. He says, the time is coming when everything that is covered up will be revealed. And all that is secret will be made known to all. Whatever you have said in the dark will be heard in the light. And what you have whispered behind closed doors will be shouted from the housetops for all to hear. What Jesus is saying is you will eventually get found out anyways. And you can keep concealing and that will lead to death. But I'm just telling you, if you're resonating with this and you're going, man, I need to make some changes, especially in alcohol. Let me just tell you, your first step is, is, is you need to get to an AA somewhere in this area. Alcoholics Anonymous. You just need to go and find out what it, what it means and what it looks like. Um, you, need to, you need to speak up to somebody. There's programs in the area called Celebrate Recovery at, that are in churches and they really help with addictions and hang-ups and habits that are destructive to our lives. And um, We don't have one currently here. I hope to begin a, a Celebrate Recovery here at Kensington soon. Um, but my good buddy Josh Eisenhardt, I've known him for decades, he says God exposes what we cover and he covers what we expose. I love that because he's just saying, hey, the stuff you cover up, God's going to eventually bring up. But the stuff that you bring up, God's going to cover that in grace and mercy and forgiveness. Which gets me to the second way to live. You can live concealing or you can live revealing. James 5, 16, therefore confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous person is powerful and effective. Why confess? So that you might be healed, so that you might get help. If you reveal, that leads to life. And notice James says confess to one another, not to God, because this, this is where it gets messy. If I only tell God, uh, I, I can still stay in hiding and still have the problem. And I just say that because I've done it, right? I have felt so good. I have confessed to God. I said it out loud. The weight's off my shoulders, only to just struggle a month later. But nobody knows. And so I go around the, around the block again with God, confess, feel better, still have the problem because I never let anyone else into it. 
God's a good place to start, but we've got to tell somebody else. Because once I tell somebody, then I'm accountable. And here's the deal with secrets. Secrets are like splinters. The longer they're there, the worse it gets. So, so what, what's the best thing to do with a splinter? What is the best thing? Take it out, right? Best thing to do with a splinter is, is to take it out. The best thing to do with the craving is to tell someone. It's like taking out a splinter. Because that brings about change and healing. For some of you, the most courageous thing you can do from this Sunday in 2018, in the first month of 2018, is you can begin to reveal what's going on in your life that nobody else knows about and start to gain victory. And I'll just tell you, part of that is why we do small groups. Like if you want to grow spiritually, you're going to grow better in a circle rather than a row, you know. But it also gives you a place to be in relationship with other people so that when you do struggle, you have those habits that you need help with. You've got a community of people that loves you and knows you that you've been journeying with that can come alongside when the bottom falls out of your life. So I'm telling you, these small group things, they're, they're impactful. I want to encourage you to jump on board and, and fill out that paper and talk to Bill in the back. But that's the second step to victory. What's the first one? The first one is this, admit that I'm powerless without God. First step, if you want victory in any of the cravings in your life, especially alcohol, is admit that you're powerless without God. Without God, we struggle with ourselves all the time. I love the way the Bible just talks about the human condition. The Apostle Paul, I read it last week, Romans 7, verse 15. He's, he's a hero of the faith, trying to live his life for God, and this is what he says. He says, I don't really understand myself. For what I do, uh, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. And I'm just telling you, if you've ever struggled with a craving... Or an addiction. This is where you live, isn't it? I want to I beat this. I want to not have this over my head in my life, but I just can't. I keep doing what I hate to do. So the first step in gaining victory is admitting you're powerless to change on your own, that you're spiritually poor, that you're weak, and you need God. And this is where the Bible comes in. 2 Corinthians 12, 10, I just let Christ take over. And so the weaker I get, the stronger I become. The more I admit my powerlessness, the weaker I get, the more God takes over and the Holy Spirit comes in and I actually become stronger by being weaker, by revealing, by going to God and saying, I need your help, I'm powerless without you. And so maybe today is your day. Maybe you've never turned your heart over to Jesus Christ. Maybe today is your day to plug into a real power source and go from powerless to powerful. And begin to beat the cravings that have guided and directed the outcome of your life maybe for decades. And so let me just give you, talk to you about where the power comes from to beat the cravings in our life. And you find it in um, Romans 7 verse 25. Paul talks about all this stuff he does and he hates doing. And then he gives the answer, which is the only time really you're allowed to give like a, a Sunday school answer is, is in Sunday school, right? Where the teacher asks you a question. You can just go, Jesus? And it's like, yes, that's exactly the answer. Romans 7 25. Paul says, thank God. Thank God the answer is Jesus Christ, our Lord. Philippians 2.13, for God is working in you once you have a relationship with him, giving you the desire and the, what's that word? Okay, let me hear it a little, a little more of that. Um, it, giving you the desire and the power to do what pleases him. Where do you get the power to live your life for God? Jesus Christ. When he's working in you, you have power to do what you can't do on your own. 
Ephesians 5.18, therefore don't be foolish, but understand what the Lord's will is. You ever want to know what God's will is for your life? Don't get drunk on wine, which leads to debauchery. Instead, be filled with the Holy Spirit. People are always asking, what's God's will for my life? Here's a little bit of it right here. Paul is saying, look, not that drinking alcohol is bad, but it can be if you don't control it. He's saying getting drunk leads to debauchery, a complete waste of time, foolishness, and harm. And it's interesting that Paul brings up alcohol and wine and the Spirit of God. And this is a beautiful analogy. You've got to, you've got to get this. He's talking about control. Talking about control. Someone who's drunk, you can see it in their symptoms. Someone who's drunk does things that they would never do when they're sober. And so when you look at it from the control aspect, if you're drunk on alcohol, what are you controlled by? Alcohol. If you're drunk on alcohol, what are you controlled by? Alcohol. And Paul's saying, don't do that. Instead, be filled, get drunk with the Spirit of God. When you do that, who will you be controlled by? The Holy Spirit. And he's saying, look, when you drink and you get drunk on alcohol, God's not in control. You're not in control. Alcohol's in control, which opens you up to a whole lot of other spirits that have control. But when God has control through the Holy Spirit, he's controlling your actions. So I want to say this. Like, don't get drunk with the spirits. Get drunk with the Spirit of God. And then you'll have power. Power of the Holy Spirit. You'll no longer be who you used to be. You'll be something different. And what will happen, the results change. Verse 19 and 20, you'll speak to one another with psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. You'll sing and make music from your heart to the Lord. You'll always give thanks to God the Father for everything in, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. When you are drunk with the Spirit of God, when you have a relationship with Him, you begin to speak encouraging words that build up and not tear down. You begin to, to, to sing spiritual songs. Vertical worship flows out of you. You have heartfelt joy. You have a deep sense of joy from the Lord, not based on your circumstances. You have a gratitude in your heart in the good and the bad times. You have the Holy Spirit transformational power in you that can change your cravings and give you power over them. And let me just tell you, there's one place to get that power, and it's Jesus Christ. So I want to ask you to bow your head and close your eyes with me. Let me just say this. There are some of you in this room, and the answer to the struggles in your life and the cravings you've had is Jesus, and you've never accepted him. You've never invited him into your life, and I just want to say, today's your day. All you do is you invite him into your life. You invite him to be the Lord of your life. You ask him to forgive you, and you ask him to be your Lord and your God, to forgive you and lead you and guide you, and you can do that right now between you and God. I'm just going to let you, let you know that over the next few moments, if God's prompting you, if you feel his press on your heart, do it. Invite him into your life. Lord, I pray for those of us in this room um, that we're sitting here going, I don't know if I've got a problem, but I think I might. God, I just pray right now that you would open our eyes to see where we're really at and give us the courage to speak up, to quit concealing and begin revealing. God, help us to admit we're powerless without you and that we need you and, and give us the strength Give us the power that you promise when we open up and we confess our sins to one another. And so God, I just pray for us to have that power today to be transparent. And God, there's people in this room right now and they have someone on their heart that they know they need to talk to, they need to be real with, and they need to 
talk about a problem that this family member or close loved one or friend has. I pray for boldness that we might speak up and jump in to the mess of other people's lives because we love them. And as you prompt us, you give us the strength to say what needs to be said in the moments that you have already designed for us to be an impact to somebody else. God, I thank you that your word speaks into this in our lives and that you care about us to the point where you don't want us to be ruled by our cravings, but you want us to have rule over them and you not only want that for us, you give us the power to facilitate that in our lives. So God, over the next few moments, I just pray that you would minister to each one of us and speak directly to our hearts, whatever we need to hear from you in your holy name. Amen. For the next few moments, um, we're going to sing a song and I just want to encourage you to do some business with God and just pray if that's what you need to do. If God's revealed something to you, respond to him. Um, if there's someone that you need to pray for, pray for them um, and just connect with the words of this song and then we're going to finish our day singing together in just a few moments.